Today's podcast is brought to you by Eggshell Light Company. For over 45 years, Eggshell Light Company has been the go-to specialty shop handling the lighting needs for all that grace the shores of beautiful Hawaii. Combining the artistic methods of the theater with the speed and efficiency of the musical touring industry, they have pioneered event lighting throughout the Hawaiian Islands. They specialize in supply of top shelf equipment and designers for broadcast concerts, corporate, and special events. From the smallest weddings to televised concerts and the largest corporate clients, they know this is your most important event. It is their goal to make sure you feel that way. Aloha from Eggshell Light Company. Welcome everyone to another episode of LD at Large podcast. My name is Chris Lose. I am the designer relations developer at Ayrton Lighting, as well as columnist for PLSN Magazine. I hope you guys are all reading and enjoying. Uh, just uh, released a new article today. I hope you guys uh, see it on my Facebook or in Everything Stays Lighting. Everywhere you find your PLSN links. I am here today with a very good friend, a longtime client, and uh, somebody I've worked with many times. His name is Daniel Boland. He is the lighting designer at Team Boland Productions and associate designer director with Dark Fire Lighting Design. Thank you so much for making the time out of your busy schedule, Dan. Oh, yeah, busy schedule. <clears throat> Lots going on. Very busy. Uh, the first time I got to work with Dan was several years ago on the the Voice Tour, where he put out a nice design that we got to tour around North America. It's been a while since I got to catch up, so I'm, I'm really appreciative for this uh, the, the few moments that we have today. Yeah, man, it's... You know, I I completely forgot about that. To be fair, that was more that was a, a co-design with uh, Oscar Dominguez, who is the uh, designer for The Voice, the series, which I I'm just the director on. And he needed because it was a tour, and, and Oscar is uh, grew up in the lighting world. He just needed my expertise about how to put something together that would tour well. Yeah, I remember having to reach out to you a couple times, like, hey, what was uh what was the idea here? And uh, you were always uh, quick to answer emails and phone calls, and I always appreciated it. Oh yeah, you know it's you gotta you know, when you put stuff out there you gotta you always gotta follow up and make sure that the people who are taking your designs and your work understand what you were thinking and make sure that it continues on properly run I guess best way to put it. Yeah, the reason I worked I reached out to you today is because I saw on Facebook just a couple of days ago that you are probably one of just a handful of people that I know that are working right now and I'm hoping you can. Uh, Talk a little bit about that. I know that uh, you did a load in just uh, three, four days ago, and yeah. you're at home right now. We are home right now, as you as you know, and I don't know if everybody else knows, but I, I'm I'm the lighting director on The Voice, one of a few, and we are in the middle of our 18th season now. And when the COVID hit, you know, we're pretty sure that our live portion of the show, which is the biggest monster you've ever worked on, uh, was going to. We weren't sure what was going to happen. So uh, Oscar, who is the lighting designer, was, you know, he, he had, well, let's make a design, put a design out, was ready to go. Then, you know, okay, so we're going to do something a little smaller. Okay, so smaller design. Okay, now we're just not going to do anything. Cool. You know, so we're not going to do anything. And then about, I don't know, about two weeks ago, uh, Oscar and, and Sam Barker, who is uh, another lighting director on the show, reached out to me and go, hey, we're, we're actually going to go in very minimal set and we're just going to do something with Carson. He's going to be on stage. Coaches will be at home. Singers will be at home. We'll just put something on stage for 
uh, background for Carson, essentially. So I get a very, very small thing compared to what we normally used to. Uh, I get a number of e emails from uh, our executive producers have been great on this, doing everything they can to make it a safe environment. Essentially, uh, if you watch the show, if anybody watches the show, you'll see, you know, any, at least in the first show or Monday show, you'll see Carson standing in front of a bunch of towers and, and tossing from there. And that's one corner of a giant, giant soundstage. And then everybody else is on the soundstage next door. And part of the safety measures that were put in place is everybody got a little 10 foot square, 15 feet apart. So nobody was within any proximity of each other while we worked. We had to, every day you walk in, you would get uh, the, the medic would test your, uh, get your temperature, make sure you're okay, ask you questions, you know, how you feeling today, any cough, anything, you know, a little off. And then you get a, a wristband, which meant you could get into the building finally. And then everybody was given a face mask, everybody was given hand sanitizer, everybody was given gloves, everything to make it as, as safe as possible working environment, stay six feet apart, which made it really interesting to hang some of those lights because you can't, you know, a dual lift is something oh, you can't do with one person. Not to mention the the 15 to 20 minutes of us trying to figure out how to get a console out of a case and onto a desk, which we eventually, you know, got clearance from the safety officer. Okay, just get it on there and then stay apart. Threw the desk up, programmed the look, got it all going up and running. Everything went great Monday. And then Monday night, we got a call that somebody was not happy about Carson being on stage. Monday night, they threw something together, took it over to Carson's house, set up there. So Carson could toss from his house. I got to, it's, it's amazing, amazing what they pulled off. You know, it's just, you think about the 22 different feeds that they had to get, get it all running up and in place. And then on top of it, now Carson can't be where he is. So now we got to get another satellite truck to feed from Carson's house. We have to get some sort of background. We got to get lighting people out there. We got to get, you know, whatever we need to get him lit so he looks good some sort of background, which they got a, a, a set piece driven up there Tuesday morning. And then I was told, well, you know, it's, we're just plugging lights and we don't need a, we don't need a programmer. You know, you get Tuesday off. I'm like, okay, well, we, we, we gave it, a, we gave it a good run. We gave it a good run. And then around 1130, uh, I get a call from Sam, our, our lighting director. He's like, uh, you need to go in because they, they're, they're going to turn the stage on at least use the stage for bumpers. Okay, so, you know, get dressed, get to stage, turn the lights on, and then record a couple of bumpers and then went home. So now we're just sort of sitting around to see if we get to go back next week. So this is the very first inkling of a rebound. It's the trickle. They're correct. It's, it's, you know, we, a lot of the, a lot of people came in to look at what we were doing. Uh, Universal uh, higher-ups came in. They talked to uh, Audrey and Amanda and Anthea, who are executive producers, and, and you know, asked them what's going on, how's it going. Joe Barrier, safety officer, was very cordial, made sure uh, everybody did their thing. I, I have, people who know me know I have this bad habit of chewing ice. You know, every time I pull my mask down and take a sip of water and crunch and then go back to programming, uh, Joe Barrier would come over after a couple of minutes, go, hey, you need to put your mask back on. So I pulled it off my face. Oh yeah, put that back on. And you know, we, we've done, we did everything that we were asked to do to make it work. This sounds very, uh, very OSHA certified. It sounds like you're very under the microscope here. Very under the microscope, you know, and, and, and people, people kept coming in that I didn't know. And, and I go, who was that? Oh, that's, you know, another higher up wants to make sure that this works. Because if this works, then modifications down the line, more people get back to work, more shows can get back into the stage, stages, and, and, and we can get, get the industry running again. You know, it's first steps, first steps. 
Well, I'm not going to speculate who the whistleblower was or what the problem was, but it sounds like it doesn't matter what odds are against us. We're going to find a way eventually. We're going to do it as safely and as methodical as possible, but we are going to continue to push forward because it's, it's in our human nature and it's in our spirit that we're going to figure this out eventually. Yeah, well, we, we kind of have to, in, to go, you know, to go back a little bit in uh, ways. So back in 2001, uh, I was supposed to start a Tory tour late September, Tory Amos, who, who I used to do designs for. This was 2001, so September 11th happened. I was sitting there after it happened, and I was just like, what am I doing? What, what, am I, what service am I providing to this world by being this lighting designer out on tour? And a good friend of mine, J.R. Edgington, he just, he called me up. He's like, hey, man, we're providing escape. The world is a crazy and chaotic place, and everybody needs escape. So we're, we're you know, what we do is really important as artists. We got, you know, we got we to gotta keep providing people this, this place to go where the world is happy. And that's, that's kind of what we do. It's kind of what we do now, even television. You know, what these, the shows I work on is, it's a scale. And it's beautiful and people love to go there. And we got to get back. We have to. Yeah, I, uh, I would hate to use the term essential right now because I don't want to compare us to doctors. But yes, we are, we're in the upper echelon of essentiality. That, right. uh, I mean, people need escape. They need to, especially people that, that live the nine to five that, that exists the, for the majority of workers and the middle class is that nine to five where you got to just get out and, and feel yeah, we, something. We, we, we provide people, you know, there are people out in the world that tell you, you know, we don't, we don't provide a service. We provide a very important service in my opinion. You know, get, let's, get, let's get the world healthy and then let's get the world happy. Yeah. It doesn't feel like that when you're a, a technician in the shop or in a warehouse in LA or somewhere, but everybody is a part of that chain and we're all providing escape and fantasy and jubilation and celebration. Yeah. And as far as I know, that's how you got started. You got started in a warehouse. I did. In, I in did. LA. Way back, 1993, I, uh, I graduated from CalArts. And uh, a good friend of mine, two good friends of mine, actually, Keely Knoble and Wally Holden, both graduated the year before me, but I went to school with them at the time. And they remember me from CalArts. When I graduated, they just basically called me up and go, hey, man, come, come to Light and Sound Design. We need somebody to fix these, the, the icons. So I started on the bench. I went there, and uh, Keely was a programming instructor for the icon console. I was on the bench fixing lights, uh, learning the trade. and then. I, I had, to be honest, I had no intention of touring, no intention of going out. I was like, you know, I'm going to be the world's greatest dance designer. I just need money. So I'm going to do this. And then <laughs> once I get out there, you know, magical dance lighting is going to happen coming out of my fingers. Next thing I know, come July, Keely comes up to me and goes, hey, uh, we're sending you out. You're going to go out as a fifth man on a four-man crew. Essentially, I was a fifth man on a four-man crew with four uh, bonafide crew chiefs. This is Primus back in the day. My first tour was Primus in 1993. You know, I was deer in the headlights, deer in the headlights. I, but I had, you know, these four great guys who crew chiefs on their own, teaching me the ropes. And at the same time, making me go up in the trust. You know, you're the new kid, get up there. Learned as I went. Learned that uh, Converse All-Stars are not the best shoes to be wearing on tour, especially when you start. <laughs> you know? No. Learned that, that pants are not They necessary. look great. They look great. You look cool, but you know, not great. Admittedly, pretty great for climbing trust because you can bend your foot around it. But for standing on concrete for 12 hours a day, not the best. Mm -mm. 
and uh and it just started from there and then i got back from that tour i'm like wow that was cool and then keely asked me to learn the console so i learned the icon console and then she asked me to start uh covering her because she started going out to program more and more gigs she's was the best at this console so people request her like i just need her to come out program the tour and then i'll take it from there so interestingly enough, uh, I was listening to one of your podcasts with Cosmo, and I actually trained Cosmo on the Icon console. Wow. Way back when, yeah, because I just happened to be sitting in at the time because Keely was out, and Cosmo came in to learn. I'm like, oh, you know, nice shirt. And then, uh, and then got him on the console, and then I, I thought, well, this is it. I'm just going to be in the shop fixing lights. When I'm not fixing lights, I'm going to be uh, on, the, uh, on the console training people. Then as things go on tour, one tour started start going – sideways so uh barry claxton who was the manager the cruise back then he goes i need somebody right now tomorrow to go out on uh, ministry we need somebody out there to cover uh this this tour we're having a lot of issues with the, with the programmer out there so i went out there and i was just basically supposed to you know load the show in like a tech and then sit in front of house with the guy who was operating he was new to the console so every time he couldn't figure something out he turned to me and i'd have to just come up and push some buttons to make it right and then he just run the show and then that was my second tour, and I just I never went back. I just never went back to the to the to the shop. It just the tours just kept coming. Amazing and, how we can just fall into this stuff. When when people ask me how I got into this industry, especially into touring, I don't know, just happened. People ask me, happened. and I I didn't say no. Yeah, and it wasn't it wasn't something like I said at the beginning. It wasn't something I wanted to do. And then after a while, I'm like, wow, I'm I'm getting paid to go and see the world. You know, somebody else has died. Granted, I'm only seeing the inside of an arena and I can look out and see the skyline every now and then, but I've, I, I've been to every city, you know, mm -hmm. I've been, I've been around the world and I've seen stuff and it's, 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 it's been great. So I, I did that for a while. And then it, I sort of, me and a, a few other people just sort of carved out this, this niche where we, you know, we were texts during the day and then at night we behind uh, new, new operators and make sure that they could run the icon console well. So I did that for a while before I just was sort of sent out as, as the guy. So the first experience I can remember of just coming in as, well, still a tech, but also programming the lights for the show and running it was uh, on Luther Vandross. Uh, Steve Cohen was the designer. Kevin Bai was on the Artisan, the Verilite console, yep. and I was on the Icon console. So he had it was half a Verilite rig, half an Icon rig, and he ran his lights, I ran my lights. And that was the first time I ever was on a console for a, a full main act show. Uh, you're in good company. Yeah, it was, it was, it was great. It was such a great experience. Steve was such a great guy, very understanding, you know, learned a lot of, you know, prior to that, when you're, when you're just sort of doing lights for opening acts or just sort of sitting behind, behind people's chairs, you watch what they do and you learn and observe. But Steve was really the first guy to go, you know, this is why I do this. This is why I want this to happen. Listen to the music. Here's how this happens. Oh, okay. You know, that kind of thing. And, and, and then Kevin by was just a riot, you know, stick is just, he's, funny as hell Sticks it was, a great it was another yeah and it was another it was another great crew of, of old hats that knew what they were doing and i learned more and more and uh eventually actually funny in 90 after that i got a, i got asked uh barry claxton brought me into his office and he goes how do you feel about tori amos and i go oh man i love her music she's great and looking and he's like okay great i'm not sending you on that tour then he sent me out to something else <laughs> i'm like oh okay he says, you don't ever want to work for people you like because it's not going to be good. Like, okay. So, you know, fast forward a couple of years, more tours, I get, I get, I get a call again 
Yeah, you know, Tori needs, they need a programmer out there. Okay, I'll be cool, I'll be cool. Uh, I get out there and I program the tour. It, it was one of the longest tours I've ever done in my life. We're out for maybe eight months. Started with big U.S. arenas, slowly worked our way down into uh, college arenas, then college theaters and the theater tour, and it was, uh, it was 98. Did that tour, got to know everybody really well. Management liked me, you know, uh, front of house Mark, Mark Hawley, who also happens to be her husband, front house sound guy liked me. Next year, when she went out again in 99 and did a, a tour with Alanis Morissette, called me again. He just need you to come program. Uh, Simon City will be the LD. He'll design it, you'll just run it because we like being out there with you. Okay, cool. Did that one and then 2000 and would have been, yeah, 2000, 2001, somewhere in there for the next tour. I get the call and they're like, we want you to design it. Just submit, submit a design, a whole design, production, you know, a set design, the whole thing. Here's a copy of our album, listen to music, tell us what you think. I'm like, okay. And submitted something and off we went. It was her and the piano. It's not often that Barry Claxton is wrong, but it sounds like in this case he was wrong. Well, he was, it, it, it seems he, he was at least in this case. But, uh, you know, it, it, I think or he maybe been, he was right to not put you on that first one and wait for this one. I was going to say, yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe you need to be seasoned a little bit more. You need to go out and push buttons for somebody else. So you can see how it all comes together. All right. And maybe I'm just to uh, too short-sighted to see Barry Claxton's genius sometimes. Maybe I have to open my eyes and open my mind a little bit more to the, the genius of Barry Claxton. Yeah, you never know. That guy, is, you know, he works his magic every now and again. Yeah, he's a, he's he's up in the he's a fighter. I wouldn't yeah. uh, wouldn't doubt that he knew. So you went from working at LSD. Was Tori Amos the first one where you were working for the band directly? That is correct. Yeah. So Tori was the first one to hire me directly. Uh, Tori Amos Entertainment (TAE) was then signing my paychecks. Prior to that, that's exciting. Sound design fourth phase. So it was it was quite a jump, you know. And you're you're like. Well, I've never done this before. What do, what do I do? How do I charge money? How do I, <laughs> what, 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 how much is my, is, is $50 million too much for a design fee? I, I don't know what's going on here, <laughs> you know? So you, yeah, you it's, ask, it's a you, tough one. It's tough to decide. How do you funnel that? How do you, uh, do you charge by the day, by the hour? What do you like? Well, back in the shop, yeah. I make eight fifty an hour. Is that, is that what I should be making? Uh, yeah. I don't know. We, wait. You're paying me $850 a week. Oh my God, this is great. That's better than the 20 bucks I was making a day. Let's do this, you know? Yeah. Uh, and then you have to, then you run into that point where you're like, okay, I have to know my worth and mm -hmm. I can't go below that. Cause if I go below that, then I'm going to drag the rest of the industry down or it's possible I can drag the rest of the industry down. because everybody's going to want people who are cheaper. So I have to know what I'm worth. I have to know what everybody else is worth and the people I respect, what do they think? And you know, I, it was, it was, it's been a learning process. It still is. When I get calls, I'm like, okay, I need, um, I need more information before mm -hmm. I can submit anything to you. You know, what, what, what venues are we playing? How long do you expect this to go? You know, what, what do you see me, my role as being? I see that I often the, the new kids coming up, they're just so excited to be out there. That they charge what they think is a huge sum until they realize that they're, they're, they're getting a lots of work because they're not charging enough. Right. And that's a fine and that's line fine to walk until it's not. And you got to, yeah. it's, you got to know, you just got to know your worth and you got to know, know what you're, what you're designing into. You know what I mean? If I'm going to be designing these arena tours, I'm going to be, it's going to be a bigger thing. I'm going to have to commit more time to it. 
I'm probably going to have to be out there more often because more mistakes can happen. Whereas if I'm just going mm -hmm. into this, if I'm just designing a small theater tour, it's not a lot of money. Or they want me to go out there for the duration. Okay, maybe I can charge a little less in the design fee and, and make it make it up on the back end. I just, I have to know what I'm worth. So let's jump forward a little bit. How did you get from Tori Amos to Eminem? So uh, LD that I did a lot of work with was Justin Colley. I worked with Justin on Beyonce programming, and that was a fun just, just another little quick aside. That tour was really interesting because we were programming in London and we were doing the tour in, in Europe. The first leg of it was in Europe. There was a lot of Austrian drapes on the trusses. You know, they'd rehearse during the day and then at night they'd have to bring all the trusses in so that they could get all these Austrians to work. So we basically programmed this tour with the, with the rig four feet off the ground. We didn't really see the thing <laughs> until, you know, about, about a, a week of rehearsals beforehand. You know, it's, it's really interesting. You're like, you think that focus is going to be okay? <laughs> okay, whatever. Let's just go. You know, that was a lot. I learned so much from Justin. Justin called me and said, "Hey, I'm I'm designing Eminem. Do you want to go out and run that one for me?" And that was uh, the anger management tour. I'm like, "Oh yeah." And he's like, "You know, essentially we're an opening act for Corn, so we we got half the show, and they got half the show." And and okay, cool. I went out and I programmed that, and then I I met uh, Curtis Battles and uh, Eminem's manager Paul. And I got along pretty good with them. And then the next tour came up and, and Justin's like, you want to come back? I'm like, sure, I'll come back. And came back and did that. And then I get a call um, from Curtis before the third tour, the third anger, anger management. And he's like, Paul wants to know if you want to do the design, if you just want to take over and be the lighting designer. I'm like, well, what, how does Justin feel about that? And, and he's like, well, a little bit of friction. So they want to go in a new direction. Okay. Let me call Justin first because I don't want to be stepping on toes. I've worked with Justin so much. I don't want him to think I'm, I'm gig stealing. You don't, you don't do that. That's terrible. So I called Justin and he gave me his blessing. He's like, yeah, just, you know, go out. I think you're ready. And that Eminem was my first, first arena tour that I ever designed. And that was also another, you know, another stepping stone. You're like, oh God, now I'm doing arenas. How much do I charge for this? Is $70 million too much for this? I, I don't know where to go. So I, I hope you're in the $70 pointer. million ballpark. Oh, yeah, yeah. You can tell from my background in this, this video call. Um, <laughs> you luxurious suite in, uh, in yeah. L.A. I, I did talk to Justin about, you know, just give me, I, you don't have to tell me your number. Just tell me how you arrive at your number for these things. And he pointed me in the right direction. And even that was a learning curve because I, I, I feel, and I could be wrong, that I might have undercharged for that one. Because a lot of things I didn't realize being... Eminem being the biggest rap act in the world at the time, possibly still, there's a lot that they expect from you. And I didn't realize that all these things were going to come up. And that was a tour where we, we shot it, I think it was for Showtime. We shot it for Showtime in Detroit. To be fair, at that time, I had no experience in, in television lighting. I just, from tours I've done before, you know, somebody else comes in, lights the audience, and we're done. And this was a situation where I, you know, somebody came in, was going to light the audience and, and we were done. I was like, that's cool. But then Paul was like, what's going on? I don't understand what's here, what's going on. And I personally at the time didn't understand what's going on. Either. I'm like, well, the camera just needs to see this stuff. And he kept, he kept yelling at me. It's too bright. It's too bright. You need to bring the audience down. I'm like, but I don't have control of the audience. So I basically, you know, started running around trying to find running into the truck and going to the, the LD and the truck. Hey, is there any way we can make it a little dimmer? The, the management is not happy. And the guy just looks at me funny. He's like, why? Why? Then we can't see the we can't see the audience. What are you talking about? I'm like, oh, I'm I'm just trying to make my management happy. What do I do here? Fortunately, they shot two nights. So the first night we had no audience. They turned it off. 
And the second night, the LD, again, his name has gone out of my head. I'm so terrible with names, but the LD and myself and Paul sat down and he explained to him, you know, the camera needs to see these things. He needs to see these elements. We need to make the room look bigger. And you're not going to see it if we turn the lights off. So they turn the lights on and then that's all good. They shoot it, comes out great. One of the first nights I ever get called in the principal's office and I get sat down and, and am told uh, the boss is not happy. He could see the audience. They were too bright. Oh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> you know. Sounds like there was a, an air gap in the, in the communication stream there. Yeah, a little bit. It's one of those things, you know, it's, it's sometimes it's easier to ask for give forgiveness than permission. And, you know, mm-hmm. again, you have to sit down and go, well, sir, you need to understand that when you, when you're going to shoot these things for television, the camera needs to see things and, and you want the room to look big, like you're playing to this massive crowd. And the only way they can see that is they're lit. And he was understanding of that and future tours that I've done with him, which I still do. There's, there's more and more audience lighting because now he likes to see the audience. He likes that, that energy coming off of them. And, uh, you know, we do what we can, I guess. That's such a tough line to walk, especially when, you, when you've been doing a tour and then everybody falls into a groove and everything feels the same. And then all of a sudden somebody's like, hey, we should totally do a DVD for this so that we can uh, blast this out to even more people. Then your artist has to do the same show that they're accustomed to under completely new circumstances. And all too often it's you that gets to be the one to break it to your client saying, so tonight's going to be totally different. Yeah. We're not lighting for the, the front row anymore. We're lighting for the 16 cameras that are going to be all up in your face. They're yeah. going to be above your head. They're going to be up your shirt. They're going to be everywhere. So we got to light everything. And those dramatic that, yeah. pauses, dramatic shadows aren't going to be there. Not the way that you're used to. And please don't yell at me. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. Sorry that happened, but you know, I promise you it's going to look amazing. It's going to look amazing on the DVD. I'm pretty sorry that you're going to be upset. So yeah, yeah, you have to be, you get to be the sacrificial lamb there to go and say, Hey, so it's not going to be the same. I'm going to, I'm going to be blinding you a lot and uh, it's all for the greater good. And it's, it's interesting too, because yeah, if you, if you think about the industry now, how much more important it is for you to have your client, you know, the act that you're lighting on stage look good on the iMag, you know, because mm-hmm. now if you, mm-hmm. if you ever look at, if you'll ever, ever watch the audience in a concert now, there's two things that are happening. One, they're holding their phone up with their little light on filming the back of the head of the person in front of them. Mm-hmm. And the other ones are looking up at the screen and that's, that's where they take in most of, of, of what, what they're seeing from, from the, from the uh, artist Mm -hmm. so it becomes this interesting balance of how much effort do i put in to make that screen look good versus what i have to do on on stage it's you know i i'm no expert i'm still learning i'm still learning a lot and and uh uh oscar and the guys over at darkfire have been very good to me in, in getting me to understand how to light for camera you try to make everything look good on stage so that the people who want to experience the stage can, and then the artist still looks good on, on, on the, uh, on the screens. Yep. And then you, you get into this sudden balancing act with the, with the, the video director, you know, you need to, we need to find a way to make your cameras pick up the lighting the way I want it to be seen on that 
without destroying the picture. And, and it's, it's, it's a fun and unique balance that's, that's come around in the last few years. And I'm, I'm really, really enjoying it. Yeah. Our, uh, our generation has gone from having to light for zero cameras when there was no recording devices ever allowed in a concert right. to lighting for 10 cameras, 10 professional cameras. And now, <laughs> 10 we're, professional. Lighting for, <laughs> now we're lighting for 30,000 amateur cameras because that's what's going to yeah. be seen the farthest. Right, right. You, you do what you can. And if I had to have a word of advice for those up and coming LDs out there, go learn how to light for a camera, you know, because that's, mm-hmm. that's going to be, become so important, you know, and, and especially the way things are going now, perhaps we may never have to do live events. It'll all have to be for camera because there's, there's still, there's still people out there, you know, there's still people out there who think, you know, I, I'm going to put a whole bunch of smoke in the air and I'm going to zip these beams around. It's going to be an amazing light show, but that's only for the people in the room. It's, it's everybody else who needs to see. Uh, that's great advice to anybody who is listening. That is a, a stark reality nowadays that we are lighting for the, the Instagrams of the world. We're lighting for yeah. the Facebook lives and the, the periscopes and the Vimeos yeah. and all that stuff. It's, it's the 20,000 people in the room pales in comparison to the million that are going to watch it for years to come. Yeah, I, I was uh, my first season on The Voice was season two straight into the the live rounds which is is a monster that year we're shooting around this time again in may i had just i was talking to curtis about doing a a dr dre coachella and i ended up not getting the design i was really really sad about it i'm like oh man this is something i wasn't able to do and i really wanted to do it i enjoy his music so on and so forth and then oscar pulls me aside because i'm sitting at the console just you know wallowing my own self-pity and and oscar the ld goes what's wrong i'm like man I didn't get to do this design at Coachella. I really wanted to do it. And he goes, well, that's what, 10,000 people? This show is 11 million. Think about how many more people you're letting for here. I'm like, oh, I guess you're right. You know, this is, if, if, if the audience is what you're concerned about, this is the better one to do. Uh, I would imagine by now you are very well experienced at trying to explain to your clients and their accountants how expensive it is to light for 30,000 amateur cameras. Is that something it's, you have to constantly battle? Constantly battle, no. The, most people are, are, are sort of, they sort of get it. They know that this, this is the, the reality. So when you say things like, uh, you know, I, I need to, we need to make sure that the follow spots are color temperature right. We need to make sure that this stuff is in the rig so that we've got some sort of, some sort of halo to pull them out from this magical background. I'm sorry the, the lights aren't as bright as you think they should be, but in order for that to look good on screen, this needs to look a little dimmer. You know, you got to find that, that balance. The economic part of it, for me, just remains the same. It's just the knowledge that I can send out there is more, if that makes mm-hmm. any sense. I would imagine so you have to constantly be convincing people, like, look, we're going to need more lights to make it dimmer. I would imagine that's kind of counterintuitive to a lot of people. Yeah. And the other, the other one that drives people crazy is, you know, we don't need that much smoke. We need more smoke. No, no, you really don't. You don't. You, you, you put that much smoke in the air, you're going to ruin this close-up. You know, you're going to mm-hmm. have all this stuff, this stuff pass in front. And it's going to pick up all the light around and you're just going to have this, this blowout. Another weird road story. I, was, I designed for Alicia Keys a few years back too. And uh, we were in uh, Abu Dhabi. And we were playing this open air festival and there were cameras there. And this was before I had any television experience. It's a desert, crying out loud, it's Abu Dhabi. They just put, they, they put grass and water in and people think it's a, it's paradise, but it's still hot as hell. And 
so we, we had this nice breeze blowing across stage and you know we had the smokers on stage and and smoke would come up but it would just dissipate it wouldn't go anywhere we couldn't see any beams Managing like we need to do something we need to we need to fill this picture a little more so that okay well why don't we just put the smokers on the other side of the hill the wind is coming from we'll just turn them on full and hopefully it'll dissipate by the time it gets to the stage just to fill the room in we do that and i push the button nothing i don't see any smoke come up i'm like oh what's going on push the button again no smoke comes up oh call my text so i go oh, not not responding the show's going on i'm like okay well i'm just going to turn that on and leave it on and start running the show <laughs> and then suddenly it all works and it is just like a fog machine just blows right across stage and just obliterates the picture obliterates everything you can't see alicia you can't see the band it's just this wall of smoke that just went through for about three minutes because i left the bloody thing on and and her management team is looking at me i'm like sorry the handle down it'll be better i promise your best dennis the menace uh, sorry yeah, sorry <laughs> it looks great it, right here you know sorry yeah, your yeah. camera can't pick up how great this looks <laughs> it's yeah. an artistic choice yeah, i really right. wanted to really accentuate that this girl is on fire yeah <laughs> i wanted to, i wanted to point out this song granted she's singing <laughs> you don't know my name but that that doesn't matter <laughs> this girl is on fire if she could just change and do the song that uh, matches the the smoke, that would be great. <laughs> right. You know, that's that's actually another story about how much I loved working for Tori. Was mm-hmm. so she would come in and you know I would we would rehearse in Florida near her house. There was a, a great studio there. So we'd set up the lighting rig, and I'd sit there and you know, come in at 10 a.m. and just sort of futz around and start programming her songs. Tori, for people who don't know, Tori never plays the same set list twice in a tour she'll, she'll have her set of songs that she'll play every night, but the songs that change songs always change in between. So it, for me, it was, yeah, you know, I, I think I ended one of her tours with somewhere in the neighborhood of 200 and 250 songs programmed, you know, on this, these tiny rigs, she only played theater. So we'd have maybe 12 wash lights, 12 hard edge lights. I have a couple of Lico's to light her and some stuff on the audience. So it was, it's always a trick to try and create these new looks, especially when you have 200 songs to program on these small rigs. So I would be in there programming and then she would show up in the afternoon sometime and she'd just sort of, you know, futz around the piano, rehearse songs she'd want to rehearse and I'd be programming and she'd just sort of look up at the rig and she'd call me on mic. She'd go, Dan, what song is this? And I'd go, oh, you know, I'm working on, uh, on uh, Precious Things. She's like, you know, this doesn't look like Precious Things. This looks like, and then she'll start playing another song. I'm like, oh, yeah, she's right. This actually makes more sense for this song. So then you have to change the name on the cue stack. Now I have to think of something else for precious things, you know, and that's, that's sort of how it always worked. She'd be, you know, she'd come in on show days in the afternoon and she'd be like, she'd come up to me and go, I'm thinking about singing these three songs today. I'm like, okay. So I'll start programming what I think those songs are. And she'll look up and go, you know, this doesn't look like that song. Maybe I should do this song tonight. So now there was, instead of having three songs, I got four songs to program. It was great because it just, she was, she's one of the few people that she would call me in uh, before the shows that so we'd go and sit in her, sit in her dressing room for about an hour and just chat. And, you know, she'd be talking about the set list and how we want to set it up. And, you know, what are the colors of these songs? How do you feel about this order? How does it flow to you? And it was, she was the best for exchanging of artistic ideas and making the show the best she possibly could. And uh, it was, you know, you come out of there and, and 15 minutes before a show and you'd hand the set list to everybody. Okay. That's what we decided on. And there would be this friend, you know, panic and frenzy to get, get all the set list out to everybody and you know the sound guys had to get their presets done and i had to go and figure out this cute the the list of stuff and of songs and it was 
it was such a great atmosphere. And, you know, everybody always talks about how touring is family. This was a family. You know, these, these are these people I'm still in contact with. These are all people I love and would love to see again. That is unheard of stage awareness right there. For her to be able to yeah. look up the lights and go, I'm like, that, this is not the song that I, this is not the look that matches this song. No, exactly. And, and, and you know, she'd sometimes come out and sit at the desk and go, what, show me what you have. This, like, oh, okay, I, I can see how that works. But why did you think that? And that was one of her favorite questions. Why do you think that? Uh, and then I have to explain myself. And actually, another good kind of road story lighting designers might get. So we were doing this, the uh, winter festival, the Christmas festival tour with Tori. So just the, it was just the core crew, myself and her husband and, and the, uh, Marcel, the audio guy on stage and the piano tuner. And that was kind of it, just us. So because it was a small, small crew, she took us out one night for a really nice dinner to this like a wine, wine bar thing. And, and people who know Tori know she, she really loves her wine. So I was sitting, Tori was at the head of the table. I was sitting next to her on one side and across was her assistant. And then down the table is all these other people. So Tori knows wine, knows all about them. She orders the wines. And she goes, does anybody want a white? And I'm like, oh, sure, I'll, I'll try white wine. So myself and her assistant and, and Tori, we, we shared this one bottle of white. Talking and chatting, I'm a good time, get to the bottom of the white. And she goes, do we want to get another bottle? I'm like, yeah, I would love to get another bottle. This is good stuff. So she hands me the wine list and goes, you pick the wine. So I don't know anything about wine at this time. I don't know what to do. So I'm like, I'll just order the most expensive bottle. And I look at it and, you know. Damn it, Tori's already ordered the most expensive bottle, so I'm going to order the second most expensive <laughs> bottle. So, you know, we get the second bottle. She, the, the, the waiter cracks it open, and he's about to pour it in her glass. She goes, no, no, let him try. So I'm like, okay. So, you know, he pours the thing. I, I do my, my, my best impression of uh, knowing what I'm doing, smelling the wine and, and this and that. And then I take a sip, and she goes, so what do you think? And it's that moment in time, you know, when you have a bigger group of people every 20 minutes or so, the conversation suddenly all dies down. It was that moment. So she said it, what do you think? And everybody had stopped talking and they all turned and looked at me. And I'm like, oh, well, the first bottle was very much like West Coast lighting. But this bottle tastes more like East Coast lighting. And everybody went, oh, you know, okay. I knew what I meant. I meant the first bottle was more flavorful and colorful. The second bottle was a little bit more pastel-y. <laughs> Nobody, I don't think anybody knew what I meant, but everybody just agreed with me like I was talking since. It's one, of, it's one of my favorite stories, you know. Yes. West Coast lighting. Ooh. I mean this with all due and the utmost respect, but that is some impressive bullshit right there. Yeah, that is <laughs> that is next level bullshitting right there. He, the, the the ultimate honesty was like, well, it was the second most expensive bottle. Yeah. But you had to discuss. You couldn't. You couldn't be that honest. You had to be just honest enough to be like, this is this is East Coast. Yes, this is East Coast lighting. It's you know this this deserves modern dance flavoring. <laughs> you know, mm, I can taste the gobos. Yeah. There's like a nice breakup. Yeah, oh. Maybe a nice mm. five one two two. Yeah, exactly. Uh, autumn leaf in there. It's great. Just, just a hint of R fifty two. That is gonna be my new lighting joke forever. <laughs> uh, my dad is a winery inspector, and oh. uh, now he's a winery advisor. 
and people ask him all the time what his favorite wine is and he's like it's whichever one that is that goes with the meal that i'm having that day i i try wine and if i like it i keep drinking it if i don't i throw it away that's what it should be you just you know what you like and you drink it and you know my my current my current favorite is is a uh, Trader Joe's special OZV old old vines in it's nothing special ten dollar bottle yeah goes great with everything if it's great you spent ten dollars if it's terrible you spent ten dollars yeah exactly yeah so listening to how Tori Amos would would grill you I would imagine that you had to really refine your substantiation you had to really be able to back up your claims and say look I chose red and yellow for cornflake girl because of X. And you, it sounds like you really had to validate your claims. There, there, there was a lot of that, a lot of, yeah, a lot of that, you know, you're, you had to explain your artistic reasoning for what you did. Mm -hmm. And the, the later tours, when, when I started using, you know, uh, when Mbox was, you know, just coming out back in the day, 2005, I guess, geez, you know, it, it became easier to justify with animation. Does that make sense? Because with 200 songs, you know, you're still going to have only your, your RGB and CMY or whatever basic values you can get. It becomes very hard to differentiate why this purple is different from that purple, let's say. But you, you, with, with video, you can, you can say my expression of this song is represented by the motion of this or, you know, the skyline representing the traveling of worlds or whatever, you, you, whatever white wine you have to come up with, shall we say. It's been... It was a real, real challenge, but at the same time, some of the most gratifying work I've ever done because, you know, at the end of it, it for me, you're, you're happy when the audience is happy, but if you're happier when the artist is happy, mm -hmm. or happier when the artist is happy. And she was always, you know, very appreciative of all the work I did. It was, it was good times then. Uh, as a programmer, Paul Normandale used to do that for me but not so much with, uh, with looks, but with movement. Anytime I would move a light or do a, a circle valley or something, he'd be like, why are you doing that? Like, well, yeah. it kind of matches the, the tempo. He's like, do you need to be moving that light? Well, no, no, I, no, I don't. I, I, I was putting a cue there just to put a cue there, but, but no, he's like, well, if you don't, if it's not necessary, don't do it. You're right. And you know, the, you know working with, uh, working with Justin Colley all back in all those years, every time I'd, I'd be running the show and be standing behind me. And if I hit the queue early or I hit the queue late, he'd be like, there's supposed to be a queue there because that's what your brain thinks. So put something there. Whether yeah. you're programming, you're, you program something in the queue or not, there needs to be something that you're going to hit because your brain tells you to do it. You know, you can, you can try and correct your brain if you want and try to get it, get it right, but it's easier to just put a blank queue. Or if you can see something that visually makes sense to happen there, then make it happen. Mm -hmm. So I wrote a lot of blank cues, shall we say, those first couple of tours. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of things that are just like 16 bars. And after eight, you're like, there was either a tempo change or a, a shift there. But you, you yeah. know, it's still a guitar solo. It's just right. 16 or 32 bars. And you're like, uh, I, I don't know. It's something changed in the middle there. I, I took a cue. I just yeah, put a cue there changed. because I think, I think it belongs there. Right. Something changed, but does something have to change? Right. You know, like you said, you're in the middle of a guitar solo because of the guitar solo. Does it need to, you know, does the look need to change or is it just because your brain says I need to put something there? My, my tempo is that. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would imagine that that's something you have, are constantly having to do. I mean, especially in in LA, where the the competition is so thick, you have to constantly be justifying why your decision makes more sense than anybody who disagrees with you. Because I know in LA, you've got lots of lots of chefs with their spoons in the kitchen. Everybody wants to think that they have the biggest spoon, and you have to like, no, I, I'm right because of X. Yeah, I, and and uh, that's that's political, and you have to be very political about how you you get there. You right. Can't just go, no, you're a, you're you're not right. I'm right. <laughs> my uh, spoon's bigger. My spoon's bigger. How dare you? Uh, and it's 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 an interesting it's an interesting balancing act how how you try to please everybody in the room, but at the same time, maintain your artistic integrity. You, you want the show to look good. And, and, you know, to be honest, there's been, there's been shows where you just sort of throw your hands up and go, okay, whatever you want to do. And in 2008, for the most part, I stopped active touring. I still design tours. I still go out with Eminem because that's just, you know, those are good people there too. I gave it up and I stopped in 2008 basically because my son was born and I wanted to stay home. So I started shifting my focus to television. You know, I've been doing The Voice, among other things, but The Voice has always been the biggest, my biggest one every year. If you think about The Voice, we have three hours of television we have to fill every week. That's, you know, in the neighborhood of 20 to 24 songs, which is a concert, really. So if you think about it, in, in one week's time, I have to program a new concert, a new touring show, essentially, in three days with yeah. limited time and, and you gotta, you know, and our rig is we've, MA has had to make changes to their, to their gear just to, you know, we're, like, like the Eurovision, we're the other show that they watch us to see the disasters we create so that they know the limits of their software. We've created some pretty good disasters for sure. Congratulations. And thank you, thank you, you know, you know, how many universe, 256? Well, I need 258, what do we do? But that's that's one of those examples where you get these A-list acts that come in and, and you have to tell them, you know, we want your show to look good. We want to do it so that your artist looks good. But you have to remember that it's still our show. We need to make it look good for everybody else in the room. And there are sometimes there are people who are just stomping their feet. No, it has to be this way. It has to be this way. And then after a while, you just sort of give up and go, OK, we'll do it that way. And of the 15 songs you play tonight, that might be the one that looks a little weirder than everybody else you do what you do yeah sometimes you have to let people let their creativity flow and see why why things are done wrong sometimes you just have to explore yeah. that and say yeah that's maybe you're right maybe you're wrong i don't know yeah i mean that's uh, that's one of the one of the things that that oscar is is really good at is is you know getting the temperature of a room and knowing how to make everybody happy he's really good at it and, you know, I, I learned from him. I take that out in my, to- my, my stuff. When I go out and do stuff, I've become so much better at, you know, gauging how everybody's feeling, the, the important people and the less important people and making sure that everybody is, is happy, has, has had their spoon and had a taste, shall we say, without giving up, you know, giving up the pie or the, or the bowl or the spoon or the soup, whatever analogy we're into. I don't know where it's going. Some chef analogy. <laughs> yeah, some chef analogy, salt, pepper. R52, whatever. Do you find that the politics influence or affect your designs or your direction more than you want it to? Have you ever, do you uh, ever overly compromise? Well, you know, a good compromise leaves nobody happy. I, I believe in that. But right. I, don't, I don't necessarily know that I've, I've ever overcompromised. There are times when I have been wrong. I fully admit that these people knew better than I. 
Mm-hmm. You know, they, they've come up to me and said, we really should do it this way. And I'm like, mm, I don't, don't see that, but let's do it that way. And, oh yeah, you guys are completely right. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to, a lot of times you just have to check your ego at, your, at the door. This is not, this is not about me. Mm-hmm. It's about that, making that look good, making as many people who view it happy. You know, it, it's, it's been, it's been a learning experience. It still is. You know, I'm an old man now. I'm 50. I've been doing this for years and I still learn every day. I'm gaining on you. I'm getting there. <laughs> Hopefully you'll pass me. <laughs> well, not if you keep uh, trying to be the, uh, the hero trying to go into the, into the studios when nobody else is going to let you go in there. Oh, uh, well, you know, got to start somewhere. Hopefully. Yeah. Hopefully somebody's got to crack it open. So I mean, we can't, we can't keep the door closed forever. We got to, somebody's got to get their foot in and uh, pick the lock a little bit and figure yeah. out the best way to get back in that door. I don't know why we're doing so many analogies today. This is, this is fun. I, I, I love some good analogies. <laughs> well, let's think of a few more. Let's make up some, man. <laughs> so I, I got to ask a couple of my listeners who asked for you, they wanted to hear all about your, uh, your Emmy award winning drop mistake. Oh yeah. Can, First can you, uh, can you talk about that a little bit? I, I certainly can. I'm not, you know, people are always like, Oh, are you so embarrassed about it? I'm like, no, nah, you know, when it, the, the moment it happened, I was like, Oh, I can't take that back. Mm-hmm. was my first thought. So uh, how it works is uh, so creative arts Emmys, uh, the voice has been nominated every year since 2012. This is 2013. It was our first win. So Oscar had other engagements the night of the, uh, the ceremony. You know, I was next in command. I get to give the speech. So you go into the you go into the Microsoft Theater and you sit down and before the show even starts they make this announcement just so everybody knows. So how this works is you have exactly 45 seconds from the moment they call your name to get up on stage, thank everybody you want and get off. We've got 600 awards we have to give out today. We got to speed this stuff up. Got to go. So I'm like, okay. You know, had the speech, had the speech, and everybody had to thank. Written down a little card, a little speech that I was going to give. And we're sitting there. We're we're halfway halfway up on the right hand side, sitting in the middle of the row. And the, the Emmy goes to the voice and the cheer. And I'm like, oh, my God, the heart starts pounding. I got to get up there. And you, you stand up. You got 45 seconds. The clock is counting down. So I shimmy my way out to the, the aisle and I start running down the aisle because I got to get up there. And I am not a, I'm not a small man. I'm, I have a little bit of girth on me. So the rented tuxedo I had that day, people who rent tuxedos know there's like a little clasp on the side that you put the pants on. You clasp it to make it tight around your waist. Mm-hmm. Class, comes, um, class comes undone while I'm running up on stage. So my pants are starting to fall. You know, it's starting to come down. So I grab the pants with both hands. And I'm running up on stage. And if you ever see the video, because there's video about me out there, when I get up there, I start hiking my pants up and people think I'm dancing. What I'm trying to do is hold my pants up. <laughs> so I got one hand on my pants and I hold the other hand out to the nice lady who has the Emmy. Now, Emmys are heavy. And there's only one place you can really grab it, and it's around the legs of the, of the angel. So she's holding it right there, and she hands it to me this way. So I don't know what to do. So I grab the base of it, not realizing how heavy it is. And I'm standing there, and everybody's coming, you know, the uh, Craig Hausnick and Sam Barker, who are also on the, on the winner's list. They're coming up behind me. And that's the moment when weight takes over. Gravity becomes a thing, and it just starts slipping out of my hand. Boom. It hits the ground. Ball rolls off, rolls down in the audience. Everybody goes, <gasps> and I'm like, oh, like I said, I, that's my first thought as well. 
can't take that back, can't hide that. So I pick, <laughs> I pick up what's left of the Emmy. I hand it to Sam. Sam's standing behind me with his Emmy without a ball on it. And I give my speech. The first thing I think is, say is, I'd like to thank my tailor for making this really perfectly fitting suit. And then go into thanking Oscar and producers and so on and so forth. And then, you know, they say, thank you. They walk us off stage. People are applauding. I get backstage and the lady back there, because it's, they don't hand you your actual Emmy. They have a bunch of Emmys they hand out. And then later on, you go and pick up your Emmy from a room. And the guy goes to me and he goes, comes up and he grabs the Emmy from, from Sam and he goes, where's the rest of it? And I go, it's down in front in front of uh, Morgan Freeman. Because it rolled down off stage and landed right in front of Morgan Freeman. <laughs> and that, you know, that's, that's the story. It, it's something, you know, I, people be, people be embarrassed. I'm a little embarrassed about it for sure, but it happens. That's and live television. That's live television. That's what, you know, sometimes things go wrong, but, and I like to think, and I can't say it's true. They, the next year they change the rules. So now when they call your name, when you hit the stage, then you have 30 seconds to give your speech instead of 45 from the moment you're running up on stage and doing the thing. So I'm, I'm thinking, oh. oh, they probably don't want people dropping any more Emmys on, on television. So let's yeah. give them a fighting chance to get there. Let's stop hitting Morgan Freeman with balls and uh, yeah, exactly. give people stop, a little, little breathing room. Yeah, probably going to have to go on my gravestone. You know, Dan Bowen, <laughs> drop the Emmy. Okay. 600 awards. That is... That's a lot to get through in a night. Yeah, well, it's, it's an exaggeration, of course. They, they actually, and the other thing they did too is now, now the Creative Arts Emmys are on two nights. So they divided the awards up even more. So you're not sitting through a four-hour show, you're sitting through a two-hour show. I had a couple more chances. I have, I have three. I had a couple more chances to drop it, which I didn't. Congratulations so again. Good. Thank you. Thank you. I survived, survived two more award shows. Well, we are almost out of time, but I want to get to the one more question from my audience that listened. They wanted to hear your best story from the Blue Man Group. Oh, wow. Best story from the Blue Man Group. Uh, first of all, I was just, uh, if you can just kind of get into how you were first contacted by the Blue Man Group as, and how experimental and how, how out of the box that must have been for you to light. That, that was, well, how I got there. I got a call from Andy Solomon, who was production manager for Tory. And he called me and said, hey, you know, I, I have friends who work for them and they, they'd love to meet you. So I, I set up a meeting, had a meeting with the original three blue men who happened to be in Los Angeles that weekend doing some television show and uh, sat down, talked with them. And they basically said, well, we're going to we're taking the Megastar tour out. We're going to call it Megastar 2.0. And we'd like to keep the design as much the same as it was from the first year, which was designed by Mark Brickman. So I said, oh, that's no problem. And, and you know, got got the light plot from the light plot that Mark Brickman had done and basically restaged it for the most part. I changed the programming a little bit because at the time I was coming more from a, a musical background than I was from a theatrical background. And they, they tend to be, they tend to think more in a theatrical tone, shall we say, than, than really full on rock and roll music. So a lot of my programming, I, I had to, I had to bring the best. And I had Benny Kirkham actually come in and program for me to make it, you know, that guy's second to none when it comes to being a programmer. He's amazing. Yeah. So he came in, he helped me program the show and, you know, we worked with, it was a very interesting collaborative effort because it's not everybody, you know, talk about having everybody having a spoon. Everybody did have a spoon on this. You know, even, even the, the sound guys, they had an opinion about how their, how my lighting was playing to the music because the music is very important to them. It's all about their, their, their drumming. So I, you know, I, I did everything I could to, to make everybody happy. 
and uh, it was it was a it was a great experience. I was there at the time. It was the longest thing I ever did. I was with them for two and a half, three years. This tour went on for a really long time. So you know, to be able to pick out one thing is is going to be hard. But it it was a it was a great diversion, shall we say, to to see just another avenue of lighting and thought process and art, because those guys are all about art. Mm-hmm. and creating these amazing these amazing visuals which they do and then you, you're trying to figure out how to make your little world accent their little world and and it, it turned out really really great for years we did some really good stuff and it, they went everywhere and i think i went they, they started taking the show overseas we ended up in in south korea for uh almost three weeks actually and i think i have some of my my best memories from South Korea because it, it was everybody for some reason on that part of it, everybody just kind of gelled and hung out a lot more than they did in the past. And, you know, there was, there was the, the local bar, the local rock bar that after the show, everybody would go to and drink. And there was a local restaurant that everybody would go and have their, their noontime ramen at and a beer. And, and we'd all just sort of hang out together and do the show and, and, you know, it was it was a very another collaborative very family experience but i think we did two things that that i on that tour that i I remember at least in korea that aren't even they're not related to the show in any way but my two favorite memories i'd have memories was we took most of the crew out i i made it i i I had this love for uh sporting clays so we would go out and shoot sporting clays every day off on that tour so it was a group of us i would find the course another guy would would uh rent the car and then we'd go out and we'd shoot these. And a lot of these places, we'd, we'd trade, uh, you know, a round of shooting for tickets to the show. So that, that kind, of, kind of worked out. And then uh, I made real efforts. And I found Olympic trap shooting course that they had in, uh, in South Korea. So I took, you know, every, everybody who'd ever shot on that tour, because there's three of us that were the core and we'd take a fourth, because you always have a fourth in your, in your group. But that one, I, we took like 10 people. And we went and we shot this the thing that the the instructors didn't speak English. We didn't speak any Korean, but we figured out how much won it was to pay to get shots. And, and then the guy would just, you know, the first time you shoot, the guy was like trying to figure out if you knew what you're doing. And then when you showed him, you're very good at what we're doing. He's like, ah, he just sort of sat down and let us do our thing. And that was a good camaraderie experience. And then the other the other thing that I threw together, because I was I was not smart back then. Uh, I wanted to. And it seems really dumb now but back then i wanted to go to north korea and i found out that there is a tour bus that leaves seoul at the time this is 2005 where you could go into south you could go into north korea there, there was a tour bus that would take you you'd go to the border they collect your your passport so you can do anything, your passport and your, your camera then they take you to a little village in north korea and you could walk around it was like you know north korea disneyland or something you could see what the locals did. And then you hit the gift shop on the way out. So I wanted to do that, but unfortunately, the tour was sold out. You had like book it months in advance and I had no idea. So I did the next best thing. I booked a tour to the DMZ, DMZ the demilitarized zone. So everybody, basically when I told, when I said, hey, you know, I got this tour of the DMZ on our day off, who wants to go? Everybody went. It was a bus full, you know, the, the blue man, the band, the crew, we all went and it was just this great time. You know, there's, it's, it's, it's a guided tour. You end up, you went to three places. 
Uh, one of them, you have to stand behind this red line because if you stand any more forward, the guy on the other side can see you with the camera and they, they get mad at you in North Korea. You have to stand back there and hold the camera above your head to get a picture of the North Korean flag that's two miles away. And then you went to this, the North Koreans had dug tunnels so that when they were to invade South Korea, they'd go in the, up in these tunnels. So you'd go down in the tunnel yourself. You'd walk all the way in. You know, so you got all these these people, crew people, going down this tunnel, and it was really a lot of fun. And of course, the last stop was the uh, gift shop. <laughs> of course, wow, that is one of the things that you wouldn't get to do as as a tourist. Like, I wouldn't pay to fly over there to go to that, but because you were there, I mean, it was really cheap. I would imagine it was fairly inexpensive to get there. And those are just one of those those minor little things that we get to do that we have access yeah. to. Yeah, I was, you know, I just, I went, when I went to the concierge desk at the hotel, I said, I want to go on that North Korean thing. And like, it's been sold out for months. You got to book it in advance. But we've got this. The lady's like, you just need at least 10 people to, to book the bus. We ended up I with 24. We had a whole bus full of people. I know 10 people. <laughs> yeah, I know 10. Let's get this going. A bunch of lampies and a bunch of entertainers just hanging out at the yeah. DMZ. Yeah, that was you know that's that's that was another great thing about Blue Man is that there was no rock star, right? Say everybody was equal. The Blue yeah. Men were no important than the crew, and everybody just hung out and had a great time. We all did everything together for the most part. Yeah, without their their blue faces, I wouldn't tell. I wouldn't imagine you can tell who's the crew and who's the Blue Men. You just have to look really careful because they, you know, sometimes they have a little trouble getting the blue out from under their eye, but uh -huh. otherwise you never know who they were. That's amazing. That's a great story. That's a great way to end this. I hope uh, anybody's listening, if you ever get a chance to tour the DMZ, uh, make sure you take your camera with you. and uh, Take your camera. It's a good time. Get, to, get some Bilberry liqueur. Thank you so much for taking the time, Dan. This has been great. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's a good time. <laughs>